This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing If, a British film from 1968. I'll kick us off. If centers on an old-fashioned British boarding school. Like many schools of its kind, this school espouses a commitment to Christianity, but the emphasis on virtue has long been eclipsed by a more democratic emphasis on status. There are chaplains still around, but the aim of this school is to create military officers. These officers are made to be courageous and obedient, like Plato's auxiliaries. Their education is decidedly not philosophical. They are motivated primarily through privileges and punishments, pitted against one another for the scarce respect and attentions of those more senior. Two distinct status hierarchies emerge. First, there are the prefects, the students who straightforwardly embrace the incentive structure and reap its rewards. Most of the prefects have caught on that virtue is not the main aim here. Insofar as their vices are compatible with the maintenance of military discipline, they will be overlooked. Long hair is a bigger demerit in this place than dunking another student's head in a toilet or treating another student as a sex object. Then there are the outcasts, led by our central character, Mick Travis. They share the military upbringing of the prefects, but they worship rebels like Che Guevara. One of them grows a secret mustache. They sneak sips from a bottle of vodka. They steal a motorcycle. They venture into town and interact with a woman. These are all things they are not meant to do, and the prefects set about trying to discipline them with cold showers and canings. Among these outcasts, status is linked to the intensity of one's rebellion and the strength of one's resolve to take whatever consequences might be meted out. Courage still counts, even if obedience is out the window. But in any case, they are clearly every bit as obsessed with status as the prefects. The prefects and the outcasts come from the same class and go to the same school. Their differences appear far larger to them than they really are. The outcasts worship post-colonial revolutionary figures, but it's impossible for them to truly be other than what they are young Timocrats. But perhaps that's too quick. You see, this film decides to have the outcasts actually perform the revolutionary act. The outcasts take up arms and start shooting everyone. In 1968, there was some genuine feeling that students could be revolutionary, that even the boarding school could be decolonized with the help of the gun. But watching this film in 2023, the scene doesn't really shock. It's just another school shooting, albeit in a highly stylized setting. The kids who were bullied shoot at those they take to be their bullies. It's almost cliché. The whole drama occurs within this one school, within this one class. It's a world shut off from the rest of society, and it's impossible to imagine these outcasts playing leading roles in a real revolution. But in 1968, this does seem to be what theorists and artists imagined might happen, that somehow the students would turn against the establishment, and lead or inspire a movement for genuine change. But the workers and the veterans, the people who play essential roles in revolutionary movements, are either not in the film or firmly on the side of the establishment. We have in this film an elite class that is so disconnected from the rest of the population that it mistakes its intra-class dramas for revolutionary situations. The disconnect is physical insofar as the town is quite literally out of bounds for those wearing the gowns. The town is so far away that it might as well be as far away as the colonies. The outcasts identify more with the revolutions in the colonies than they do with their own workers. They think nothing of stealing from the little people at home while idolizing the underclass abroad. The president of the college claims he understands the boys, but he really doesn't have a clue. When he meets with them, he starts talking about existentialism. But these boys aren't admirers of Sartre or Camus. Those talkers lack the military heroism that is a prerequisite for being a role model at this school. A couple of weeks back, we watched the Greek film Chevalier, a film that ends with one of the characters cutting himself in a bid to become a blood brother with the others. Among the professional class men on board that Greek sailing vessel, the gesture is courageous but also ridiculous. In this film, the same thing happens. Mick Travis insists on becoming blood brothers with his comrades. But here they take him entirely seriously, and then they set about acquiring live ammunition. 
In both films, we have a group of men obsessed with status and rank. But in this film, there is a military establishment, which one may obey or defy. In Chevalier, there is no clear basis for determining status, and so the Greeks set about inventing a nearly unlimited number of ways of making invidious comparisons with one another. But apart from that detail, the two films are rather similar to one another. In both, it's a group of boys in their own little world taking competition, not just their competition, but the idea of competition, too seriously. When we pursue status and recognition for their own sake, we get badly confused. Status and recognition are instruments for inspiring children who do not yet understand the importance of valuing the good for its own sake. But in a school where serving the empire trumps serving God, status eclipses substantive value, and a kind of instrumentality reigns supreme. It's not, in this case, the instrumentality of the market, but it is a form of instrumentality all the same. In a school where substantive values are relegated to window dressing, neither the prefects nor the outcasts have any chance of finding meaning. Ultimately, we get little more than a gang war fought in waistcoats. Anyway, that's what I think. Let's hear what Helen has to say. Yeah, this is an interesting film that I had seen in the last couple of weeks, but um, and so suggested it, but hadn't seen since I left one of these institutions for the last time in 2013. So it, this this uh, this world, which is a world I'm very fascinated and just repulsed by and drawn to in many ways, um, is one that I'm very familiar with because I was a student at a school like this, which um, even though I obviously this was in the uh, 60s, 67 is filmed, and I was in a school like this in the noughties, um, you know, much quote unquote has changed, but things change, things stay the same. And actually the eerie um, kind of callback for me was confirmed in the fact that some of the films, some of the film was filmed at the school that I actually went to. Um, and then I uh, later after university taught in a school like this, quite a famous one, I think for sort of a psychoanalytic return reason to revisit the site of sort of the ghostly site or whatever to try to work it out. And then having spent a couple of years there, I couldn't work it out at all as in um, trying to rationalize it. But I think actually, aside from, you know, the mechanisms by which you explain that it functions, it is highly irrational. And I think the irrationality is the point, but I'll I'll, um, come on to that in a second. But the reason I kind of was drawn to it, it's actually, I was kind of uh, watching it, I think, because, um, I'm in a sort of a relatively new relationship and it sort of like led me to, uh, God, I really hate being too personal, but anyway, I'm being personal, whatever. Um, You know, it's led me to sort of like revisit past kind of issues uh, in a new light. And I think that's why I rewatched this film uh, with my new partner. But um, it really, something that spoke to me was not not the film itself, which I think is um, both flawed and interesting, but um, just a moment in the film, which is to do with um, the, uh, as you say, Benjamin, the students taking arms, taking up arms. So we had talked recently about, you know, this question of the revolutionary subject. And you kind of touched on this in what you were saying, Benjamin, in terms of, well, the revolutionary subject in terms of the um, the superstructure of the political economy will deny who the revolutionary subject could be precisely um, to continue the society's functioning and that the quote unquote victim of the society, as you say, you know, like the working class in this instance is always removed from subjectivity. And we kind of see this in um, the phenomenology of spirit and Hegel in terms of the master slave dialectic, but like the person who in the master slave dialectic is um, the person who could shine a light on the proper functioning or the ill functioning of the society in sort of the ancient world to remedy it and sort of sustain it is cast out and doesn't have subjectivity. But what I've noticed a lot in um, kind of discourse, university discourse, and in the, in the Lacanian sense, the university discourse is just sort of the master's discourse in disguise or the capitalist discourse dressed up in kind of like well-articulated, you know, self-congratulatory lingo. There's always this sort of like um, a secondary tertiary reading of critical texts looking for the emancipatory subject. And people always, you know, in this very identitarian age where anxiety, where a lack of civil society, where instability, 
leads us combined with the sort of bad infinite capitalist logic of a solution. Um, we look for a solution in identity and grasp onto identity signifiers. And we're always looking for the emancipatory other. This We see this in adverts and just the whole um, ideological infrastructure of our contemporary moment. And we're always... Um, you know, a way to sort of get people to liberally invest in the market is to con constantly shift this sort of emancipatory subject. So we see this as well in the way that, um, you know, first as um, tragedy, then as fast, we have first as serious political, you know, movements for social justice, then as advertising to to you know, soothe us into sustaining the same libidinal dynamics so what we have is a sort of an you know an apparently um we have a very well educated uh, society people who've gone through university but uh, you know and a, and a constantly quote unquote you know critical lens of what's going on but within this critical lens despite it actually um taking the shape of critical discourse it's always in a more um, metaphysical sense, uh, the same capitalist logic, the same bad infinite, the same ideology of promise. Um, so one of the ways, yes, to, to constantly offer a new horizon, a new El Dorado, and it's a very sort of colonial attitude where we have the undivided other who can teach us a thing or two. There's always this idea of who can be the, you know, the new in vogue emancipatory subject, and whether it's uh, conscious or unconscious, this is sort of sold to us often in, um, you know, the, the the reification of identity and the selection of the latest identity category who can teach us a thing or two. But really, at the end of the day, who is the revolutionary subject? It's the soldier with a dialectical capacity for thought and criticism. So we look at any revolution in in the history of the world, and a revolution happens at the point which. The soldier, the people with arms and might who are used as the teeth of the state, turn against the status quo and side with the people. That is the revolutionary moment. So we can talk about this, you know, the revolutionary subject X. We can, you know, um, again, and this is a very bad, infinite kind of way um, to project into the future a possible utopian future whereby some group um especially has some insight that's better than everybody else's insight and comes to teach everybody else. But at the end of the day, revolutionaries, revolutions happen when things get to such an extent that um, those employed by, it might be a state, it might be a corporation or whatever, use thought and reason as a speaking subject. So they have the capacity as a dialectical subject to side with those um not in the descendancy of a given political order. And we see this, you know, in the 1830s, we see this in Russia, we see this all the time. And I think it's just interesting, like whether or not, you know, I'll talk a little bit about the politics of the film in a second, but whether or not we agree with, you know, this sort of more kind of um, hippie um, rejection of the militaristic discipline of the school. The fact is when the main character is on a CCF. So CCF is like mini army training that happens at British boarding schools, the CCF camp. And he has a gun with actual live rounds in it. And he points it towards the school vicar, who is the sort of like emblem of ideology, the religious justification for the order in this institution. As soon as he points the weapon at this guy, the vicar completely turns into a blubbering, embarrassing mess. And I just think it kind of shows, you know, maybe this is something, this is not, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, on the side of violence in any way, but I think this is this, this idealist, um, capitalist reification of identity misses the point of what really a revolution actually is. Um, and, you know, we, we talk about a lot how, how discourse becomes digested and weaponized by the capitalist order to to miss out the real blood and guts of the reality of the of the criticism. Um, so it's the thing that really I think is the most terrifying about our age is not um, you know that maybe the common parlance issues per se, but what's really dangerous is when the police and the military, who up until this point in history 
are human subjects who, even though they have potentially their dialectical reason trained out of them through their training, their ideology, their sort of sensitization to violence, they still have the capacity. Obviously, in America, this is um, less the case because in, in the UK and elsewhere, police are trained to deactivate violence rather than incite it. And in a society where the population is armed, where people are so poor that they're, um, that they, um, and, and that there's such inequality and such stress amongst the populace that, that violence can happen, you know, human subjects still have the capacity to not shoot at the human populace and to say no. So even though, you know, this military training, this military discipline, the school um, exemplifies the mode of training people out of dialectical reason in the moment and to immediately react in a certain way based on the ideology. Human police and human military have the possibility, specifically, particularly the military, to be the revolutionary subject and to actually enact the will of the people um, and also to not indiscriminately kill. And as I say, in America, this is less the case because of material conditions. What really is the shit show and really is that I think the philosophical um, nub of our issues today is the robo-dog. A robot is not a dialectical subject, does not think, does not desire, does not have the capacity, does not have subjectivity, does not have the capacity to go against their order. And that's really when things are going to be shit. That's an aside. <laughs> but yeah, no, so um, I think it's interesting that this film is um, set in 1967. Uh, 67 is obviously a year that precedes 68, but a lot of the kind of um, liberal questions are being asked. Um, the sort of this hippie reaction to a more staid and traditionalist society um, is in the ascendancy, but it's still tied to the underlying capitalist dynamic. It actually accelerates capitalism rather than um, steps outside of it. And it's the same uh, uh, bad, infinite ideology of promise that is within every order, but on steroids in capitalism that causes the problems of um, exclusion, discrimination, repression, um, and you know, extraction of surplus value. So the, this is not a, the, the the solution being proffered is not is not a good one. Um, and, and just in terms of the, the question of how these institutions run. So first of all, I think it is what it kind of gets right. And so, you know, as I said, you know, things change, things stay the same. There's a lot, you know, you don't get beaten at a school like this anymore, but there's still these sort of orders of um, discipline and, and structure, which, uh, you know, I'm not somebody who's a complete anarchist and think that, you know, you can do away with all societal norms and things like that, which I think that the that the 68 kind of mode tried to do, but actually just ended up repressing the contradiction because at least when there's a societal norm and a kind of understanding that things, we live in a dialectical messy universe. And so there are ways to sort of mitigate the excesses of the chaos. There's a sort of recognition of the chaos, a sort of um, non-utopian realism there that then people can actually actively um, tarry with to transform society. And when those issues are repressed more, we get an even greater degree of repression whilst patting ourselves on the back that we're actually moving towards a sort of more emancipatory future. Um, and I, you know, I kind of like the idea that, you know, the 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 military sort of pervasiveness, how how this sort of expresses the um the way in which these institutions run in a sort of disembodied way that the the, the children are, the, are those that are instigating the 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 discipline structure, um, and yeah, I I I think it it also really does well the exposes well the kind of um, illogic, unreason, surrealism of these kinds of environments and how strange it is that that people have. Um, Bought into these systems and pay a lot of money for. So the um, so uh, you know I I grew up in a, my um, parents were in the military and we were sent to these sort of schools and there were sort of these um, freebies for people involved in that kind of that, that kind of world. But the um, the people pay a lot of money as independent people to, to kind of go to these institutions and the question is always sort of why you know. But again, this is to do with the um, the the nature of drive 
death drive, I would say, in fantasy, and how humans are able to make all kinds of obscene and crazy sacrifice for the promise of some upside on the sacrifice. So if you believe you're going to win a gold medal in the Olympics, you will do absolutely everything to the extent of you know injecting yourself with all kinds of crazy drugs and stuff. So people do crazy things. Um, in uh, almost the more elite the institution, the more insane um, the, uh, the acts that people take to try to partake or participate within the institution if there is a promise that this institution or participation in this institution will pay off. Um, And I think it's sort of an example of the parents of all these students made a rational decision to send their children to these institutions, presumably having gone through this themselves and thinking it's a good idea because of the potential payoff, um, which of course is emblematic of the insanity of the human subject. Um, I also kind of find it interesting that this is, so this is a film presumably made by artsy types who went to these schools and sort of, uh, you know, um, potentially looking down their noses at this kind of institution saying, well, you know, we're so above this. We've had this sort of insight, like the main character, that these are not very good places. But I would say that I potentially had a reaction to this kind of um, institution and imagine that the arts would be filled with much more kind of reasonable uh, loving, kind, brotherly people, um, but have not found that to be the case at all. <laughs> so, um, you know, we we get sometimes more um, more uh, uh, traditional environments sometimes do breathe a brotherliness that more kind of anarchic and hyper competitive, where the the, the system of com- competition is repressed and there's a sort of more of a lawlessness. Things can get even more sort of cancelling, mean, and um, and harsh to one another. So I guess there's a, neither one is good, but uh, there is a way potentially of understanding human subjectivity and society in order to pick the living flower and create something more um, emancipatory. All right, let's hear what Nina thinks. Yeah, so it was nice to go back to this period. I guess we we watched Blow Up um, a while ago now. Um, and I think this film shares something of that kind of strangeness of the 60s, the 60s coming to terms with various, um, I suppose, new developments and shifts in the culture, whether they be to do with consumerism, sexuality, um, this kind of countercultural uh, moment, um, but also trying to cope with it in a artistic form, which is quite surreal. So the film moves between colour and black and white um, in a way that's relatively random. It's not just like the old scenes are filmed in black and white and the newer in colour. It's a bit more obscure than that. Um, But there's something of this sort of technique of, um, uh, you know, distanciation or or kind of disconcerting effect um, that renders it sort of slightly slightly weird um, in the same way that the sound in the image, I guess, is is being split a lot in films. Like we saw that in Blow Up at the end, but also in Godard more experimentally uh, and others later on. So there's kind of uh, confusion of, of, of this period, I think, but also the potentiality of it. And it is a, it's a very, it is an interesting film. I've seen it a few times, um, but not for a while. Um, the other parts of the trilogy where the Malcolm McDowell character plays like a kind of everyman, um, are also uh, sort of, I want to say, extemporizations on the theme of the strangeness of Britain, (laughs) I suppose. They they, they break from the school. Um, Yeah, it's interesting about the the kind of image of the private school. Like when I was younger, I, for some reason, I was reading these novels uh, that were quite dated, uh, amongst other things, and they were called Jennings and Derbyshire. And they were about these sort of two boys who go to private school and they did things like prep and, you know, these sorts of things. And I had this great sort of fantasy about going to one of these schools because I thought it'd be great. You could like learn Latin and you'd have all these sort of this structure and so on. So I have a slight residual (laughs) fantasy, which no doubt would have been smashed to pieces uh, had I actually attended (laughs) one of these schools. Um, But I think it's a deep, it's a deep part of the British psyche, whether or not you attend one of these schools, that this is something you see it in the Harry Potter more significantly, you know, that the private school image is a kind of fundamental structure of what it means to be British somehow. Like it's it's a sort of ingrained part of our culture, both politically, socially, and in every other way. And also primarily about to do with, with class. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with Benjamin in the sense that there there isn't much between the supposed rebels or the crusaders, the countercultural figures, um, and the, the 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 other people, the other boys at school. They're all basically the same kind of subject, and they're all trained to be the same kind of subject, um, apart from the the moment at the end. And of course, everything is hypothetical because this film is if ellipses. You know, it, it's about the whether the oppressed, so quote unquote, in this film actually would do something like this revolutionary, which is ultimately a violent and murderous gesture. And to go back to the existentialist point, I mean, of course, Sartre and the existentialists did uh, practically and officially support the uh, revolutionaries um, in other parts of the world. Obviously, Fanon would be the main one. So so there is a kind of link, actually, between the the, the, the liberal headmaster who's trying to understand the angst of the, the pupils and uh, existentialist figures who actually did... Um, support third world and revolutionary movements um, during the 60s, 70s, and even 80s. But I agree that the school shooting, the shooting at the end, has a very different resonance in 2023 than it would have done in the late 60s. And I'm wondering if this is the first depiction of a school shooting, as it were, in cinema. Uh, There's a question that occurred to me while I was watching uh, the final scene, um, probably not, but I, it's a it's a very striking, very famous scene in in cinema. Um, but yes, has a very different valence um, now. I mean, I take I take the point that people are making about the army. I mean, this is interesting. It's something we keep coming back to actually as a as a theme. Um, I'm reminded of someone telling me about the Egyptian uprising a few years ago. Um, obviously, I, I lived with an Egyptian guy for two years who was claiming asylum. He stayed with me. Um, but one of the slogans of the uprising was um, something like when fear changes sides. And it was to do with the army going over to the side of the people, basically. So it was like the fear that the army that is owned by the state and by the army then switches to the people once the army have uh, transferred their allegiance. Uh, and I think it's it's obviously true that the army, you know, it, where the army sits in a revolutionary situation is is one of the most crucial uh, questions. And I agree, it has to involve, as Helen says, this this dialectical subjectivity, such that there is a decisional point to, despite all of the training. Um, and people have, have often said that it, the army will fall because they are more in touch with the people because they are the people than the police, that the police have a, an identity that's tied much more to the state than the army army does, especially when the army is uh, based on a conscription model where you don't necessarily choose to, to join. So there's something interesting there about the different state forces. And one thing this film does very well, I think, is, that, is lay out these different structures. So the religious aspect, the kind of bureaucratic aspect, the, the matronly aspect, the educational aspect. Of course, it's all done in very parodic and, and cynical ways. You know, the, the, the priest is kind of an abuser, um, the you know the the matri- the women are kind of crazy <laughs> um there's a this film is also very much about this uh about repression it has a very kind of simple not really very foucauldian model of sexual repression you know all of the people on the side of the uh counterculture are very sexy. I mean, Malcolm McDowell is unbelievably attractive. <laughs> um, the, this film has one of the most beautiful sex scenes I think cinema has ever made, which is a scene in the cafe when they escape on the motorbike um, and they meet this character played by Christine Noonan, who's the the waitress or the, the, the woman running the cafe, which is otherwise completely empty. And there's this very surreal scene where, where it becomes very animalistic and they pretend to be tigers and they're rolling around in black and white and there's this beautiful... Um, African song on the on the jukebox, and it's 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 a very very strange moment, very very beautiful, um, and clearly by the end the countercultural crusaders are represent are representatives of the various civil rights movements. Um, let's be clear. So you have um, not only the kind of the militarily trained men who are um, you know quote unquote oppressed and exploited. Um, you also have the homosexual, uh, the young boy who um, is gay with one of the other rebels, but not in the same way as homosexuality is exploited by the um, the sort of very unpleasant men who were in charge of the younger boys, right? So there's an image of homosexuality here, which is based on love and affection, uh, even though <laughs> clearly there's an age question in this film, which is not really dealt with. But but uh, this, this contrasts with the kind of use and abuse of 
violent um, sexualization as uh, evidenced by not only the priest uh, figure, but also by the, um, what are they called? Like the whips, the, the, the men who are in charge, the older men who are in charge, the prefect type figures, the prefects who are in charge of telling everyone else what to do and are invariably sadistic, um, as well as sort of treating uh, some of the boys like like sort of sex objects and so on. Although some of them do and some of them don't, right? This is also a kind of point of tension there. So you also have in the final scene, uh, the woman comes back from the cafes of the Christine Noonan character who looks unbelievably 60s. She's got this, you know, incredibly 60s uh, look, very, uh, very beautiful woman. Um, but it's clear you have the sort of the rebels, the homosexuals and the women. <laughs> like this is the new civil rights countercultural formation, basically, by, by this point in the late 60s, as well as, as, as you pointed out, um, Benjamin, the, the relation uh, assumed or otherwise very much assumed with the third world revolutionaries. So this is the new countercultural, this, this is the formation. And I think one is left with the, the sense that this is, this is a film about sexuality. You know, the young people are all very sexy. It's actually a very sexy film, uh, it, you know, but it has a very simple model of like de-repression, I would say. But this is also a film about the passage of systems over time and, and the kind of clearly the, the, the cynical, surrealistic and jokey portrayal precisely of these old structures that are seeking to promote particular ways of life, but they are outdated, even when they are trying to cynically stay with the time. So the headmaster at one point in his liberal uh, way starts talking about, oh, new developments like the miniskirt and and so on, trying to sound cool um, whilst presiding over a very old-fashioned uh, set of ceremonies to do with the repetition of hymn singing and these kind of uh, quasi-Christian virtues, um, yeah, as you said, married to sort of like militaristic and status hierarchies. Um, and I think you get this sense that, like Alistair McIntyre talks about, what happens when a culture forgets about the reasons why it's doing its rituals. So people can't carry on doing things, but they don't know why. <laughs> um, and, and this sort of leads to, yeah, opportunities for these kind of countercultural um, rebellions, because if no one can tell you why you're doing this ritual, why on earth should you be doing it, right? It's like... Uh, you know, if the structures that be don't show they're working out or they don't say, let's, you know, we worship together because it instills these particular virtues and these particular virtues are good for the following reasons, because they unite us as a community. But we do them merely as a form of outward show. Um, we inevitably will start to question them. Right. And this is very obviously what's happening at this period. It's, it's a very good 60s film in that sense you know all of these old structures are becoming seemingly increasingly irrelevant compared to things like freedom sexuality you know experience like the the scene with the stolen motorbike is is a such a 60s scene an image of what freedom is you know this this idea of a kind of liberation from all of these shackles so i think it's you know it's precisely in the setting it in this kind of context of the school and these hierarchies and all of these things. And you have the, the de-repressive subject also in the housemaster's wife, Mrs. Kemp, when she wanders around naked while the boys are being soldiers and she's in their sort of dormitories stroking their water bowls and, and so on. And, you know, and it's sort of this idea that actually uh, beneath, seething beneath all of these structures is this desperate desire for libido to flow, you know, and that, that everyone is just uh, pretending to be interested in these structures. And actually really what they want to do is pretend to be tigers and, and have sex on the floor of a cafe while some exotic music plays in the background. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's my... <laughs> That's my two cents. But it's, it's interesting because a lot of these schools, like you, you say about the, the irrelevance by the time of the 60s, where obviously a lot of decolonial movements were happening. You're talking about those different movements happening around the world. And the British public school really took its shape during the Victorian period, during British colonialism. So um, it really trained a lot of people to be um, kind of work for the foreign foreign office or work for uh, be some sort of um, colonial officer, and um, a lot of these, as you see in this this film, the sixties, it's like it's it's um, stiff upper lipping everybody, you know, service to nation, and obviously, um, you know, sacrificing the self for the good. And there's a sort of idea in in, in the, the colonial moment in Britain that you have this very like rationalistic system that just gets kind of 
quote unquote, of course, gets plonked very, um, very candidly all over the world. And you have a, a handful of people kind of um, running. And it is it is a very sort of self-sacrificial. Well, I mean, obviously, the cover story for colonialism is the self-sacrifice of the sort of um, the, the missionary and all this kind of thing. And the painted veil is obviously very good on this. And it's about, uh, you know, a couple uh, who the wife, the wife who is more um, self-centered and the, the the husband who's more self-centered in another dynamic um, in his uh, self-sacrificial, quote unquote, um, quest to cure diseases in different parts of the world uh, when it's in the far east but anyway it it that that model is um coming into question obviously by the 60s and even today i mean you talk about like the the role that these schools play in the british psyche i mean it, that role is basically done in a way i mean it is a hangover the the cost of these schools now has so outpaced inflation that it's obscene it's just oligarchs kids ultra high net worth people it really has nothing to do you know it, it, it's these are more, um, you know, paid for um, venues to educate your children. You know, the, the sort of kudos, you see this in the university system where in the international wealth, you sustain one of British Britain's greatest sort of products, quote unquote, or brands, which is the education system. And obviously, it's a relic of this more Victorian model that's no longer really relevant to British people because we do not play that role in the world anymore. And certainly that role was in massive decline in, in the 60s. Um, but yeah, the, these these schools are just not. And interestingly, you had, you know, generations of schools. So I, I taught at this school, Eaton, there was this room where um, people would write their name in the wood panelling if their their parents had been there before. And you'd sometimes get like six or seven or eight generations. Interestingly enough, when the school was set up in the, it was like 14 40, I think, um, you know, it was for it, it charity case kids or the kids of, you know, uh, the clergy and stuff. So it, the, these boarding schools went from kind of um, very more um, the poorer people to during the, the the Britain sort of 19th century moment, um, although the more like hyper bourgeois people wouldn't go. And then this sort of became that it became this product given this moment. And then it's sort of now it's kind of tailing off and it's more this sort of like commodity that can be sold. And you have these schools as well doing their, they, they kind of sustain themselves by doing these franchises all around the world. So you might have like Harrow Dubai, Harrow Bahrain, Harrow Singapore, this kind of thing. And it really is just a, it's just a product at this point. The neo-colonial elites in the former colonies are very keen to give their children the experience that the colonial master's kids got. And I think a lot of um, the ability of these boarding schools to survive depends on neo-colonial elites sending their kids to the UK for education on the theory that Britain has some kind of mystique. Uh, Harry Potter, I think, very much kicked all of this stuff along. If you look at the enrollment numbers for boarding schools by the 90s, they had, a, they had about had it. Uh, but Harry Potter came out and that kicked a whole nother <laughs> generation into those schools. And I think kept them around and relevant to a very significant I, I think degree. this is one of our, our best, the lack conspiracy theories, that Harry Potter was a secretly an agenda to keep British boarding schools going. This is, this is quite good. I'm not saying it was an agenda. <laughs> no, no. But I, I think what it, what it speaks it. to is what you were saying earlier, right? Like you didn't go, so it has a mystique for you. And I don't think J.K. Rowling went, so it had a mystique for her. <laughs> Definitely. And then that mystique lured a bunch of people back into those schools who really should not have been thinking about going. Now they're so expensive that it's just the uh, international neocolonial elite. The, yeah, these schools also used to be sustained by, um, you know, the British Foreign Office, companies like Shell and, and the military. They were literally almost, you know, a majority of the students. So the majority of the money was was not actually, it was paid for by these wider institutions. Interestingly, the first boarding school I went to was where, um, this is this is the great kind of like fucking, um, you know, running cover for boarding schools, these novels, Enid Blyton. So uh, it was where um, Ma uh, Mallory Towers was set. And it's definitely not like Mallory Towers, let me tell you that, even in the 90s. I mean, and the Mallory Towers is like written in the 50s, but it was like, you could have a picnic at midnight. No, you absolutely fucking couldn't. The punishment you would get for like being caught talking at 9.30 would just be horrendous. So, um, yeah, 
No, it's definitely not. No, sure. I mean, I, I had a, you know, a tape audio book. Sometimes I would obsessively listen. And one of them was Summer Term at St. Clair's, which is an Enid Blyton story. <laughs> and it was very much Her like Our children went to the school that I went to and were miserable. <laughs> oh, my God. So, well, yeah. No, yeah. but maybe she, she wrote it as a sort of a cover story for the fact that she didn't. I have no idea about the bio, biographical details of Enid Blyton's life. But... Perhaps she felt guilty about sending her children and wrote a sort of story to sort of, I don't know, who even fucking knows. Um, yeah, but I was going to, I was going to pick up on something that you said earlier about the school shooting. It's interesting that like, mm. you know, we have this sort of cultural war moment that likes to lock down a given phenomenon into a, a cultural camp. But of course, like, you know, you know, we might say that the woke is on the side of the anarchic overthrower of the traditional system. But of course, you know, they're very much not on the side of the school shooting. So I, it'd be interesting what somebody of a sort of more like woke perspective would 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 see in a film like this. I mean, they used to be on the side of the school shooter. One of the things that's changed is the degree to which uh, progressives have become more comfortable with the liberal state and therefore less comfortable with rebels. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, this is absolutely I, I, yeah correct. I think that's in evidence. I took a look at a list on IMDb of 220 films and TV shows that involve a school shooting tag. If is the oldest thing on that list there you go. to have that tag. Right. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Um, I, I did think that when we, when we were watching it. Um, yeah. I, I, but I wonder, you know, because also you have defund the police, which is a serious part of um, the sort of progressive agenda, or at least was in the summer of 2020. Um, which is also, which is obviously an attempt to isolate yeah. part of the state. But this is also to a large degree kind of predicated on the idea that crime is no longer a significant issue. Right, yeah. Right? Uh, that crime is just something that doesn't even really happen or only happens in places where you don't have to pay attention to it, that people are constantly overstating the amount of crime that occurs. Mm -hmm. It's not that they're on the side of rebels or on the side of people who commit crimes as such. It's that they uh, think that, that they're so untroubled by crime that they think that it's no longer necessary, that people are able to just spontaneously produce the kind of cooperative communal behavior that's necessary to get on without the police. Yeah. It's interesting that the, um, the, yeah, this, this sort of nice impetus to sort of desire that people act in a certain way or that people form social bonds in a certain way and mutually care for them for each other, which is obviously a great aspiration. But, you know, it really obviously misses, which you would think would be the requisite factor for being a kind of a left wing take the material determinant that that leads society to not be that way at this current moment and lacks any kind of critique of that material, um, like disquiet, which is, yeah, obviously we've said this a million times. <laughs> On the point about the military, I wanted to highlight mm. the most counter-revolutionary thing Richard Nixon did was get rid of the draft during the Vietnam War. Yeah, That was without a doubt, if there was any kind of potential in 60s left-wing politics, once the uh, hippies were not being drafted, that potential was completely destroyed. Yeah, it's interesting. Do you think Nixon did that? I don't know why he did that or what was his reason that he gave. To uh, improve the level of support for the state among young people. Right. The argument that was being made at the time is, you know, if you're going to, uh, you know, that you shouldn't be taking away people's liberty by forcing them into the army mm -hmm. if you don't absolutely have to. And the strategy at that point was to reduce the number of troops Anyway, that were uh, in uh, to reduce the number of troops anyway that were in Vietnam. So it wasn't necessary to recruit uh, as many troops as uh, previously. And I think that contributed somewhat to it. Uh, but also Nixon was just obsessed with winning that 1972 election. He was really convinced that if he didn't do everything possible to win it, that they'd steal it from him like they did in 1960. And so he did all kinds of absolutely crazy stuff, like running the inflation rate up to 7%, spending enormous you know, uh, you know, piles of money trying to produce strong economic growth in 1972. Mm. <laughs> no, well, this is... 
Yeah, the issue with an electoral system. I mean, the the other question for the revolutionaries is like, what do you do after the revolution? You know, I mean, you've killed all these people. <laughs> um, you know, how are you actually going to maintain power um, in any meaningful way? Uh, this is obviously a perpetual question or problem for, for the revolution, um, which often invariably ends up in a, a state of perpetual purity and purification of itself um because you know no one is revolutionary enough <laughs> no it's also you know indicative of the the counterintuitive kind of like emancipatory role that certain um political quote unquote um you know how how capitalism has really uh, you know everything that is solid melts into air and politics itself has been melted into air and so we kind of see what is political or or misread what is political and everything becomes hyper-political at the precise point when politics isn't actually happening within the dynamic, within the sort of containment of politics itself. In fact, politics isn't really happening at all. But, you know, it reminds me of the these um, figures that are running for president in, in America and how this actually serves a, 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 like a you know a shepherding role into a more kind of like democratic non-revolutionary consensus whilst at the same time as offering people the illusion of um you know, sort of a self self-satisfied illusion of some kind of actual change that might might occur but the the system is such and the understanding of the system is such that it it goes on <laughs> even yeah, more in a more of, of the, mode part of the difficulty here right is that Oftentimes, you can only motivate someone to be revolutionary by offering them the possibility of the society without contradiction, you know, the society which gets the benefits of capitalism without the drawbacks or has the benefits of democracy without the drawbacks, right? Uh, if you don't offer some kind of, of completely unrealistic ideal of that kind, it's very difficult to motivate people to put themselves at risk in the service of some revolutionary cause. But then if you abandon that, People tend to abandon revolutionary politics and then they get sucked up into you know, boring Democratic Party garbage that doesn't go anywhere. Well, we should all be very depressed and then think about <laughs> things in, in the midst of our black hole <laughs> of depression. Oh, speaking of which, I watched Bo is Afraid recently. I don't know if you guys have seen this film yet. The new Ariasta. Benjamin, have you had a chance? Yeah, it's it's very uh, the first twenty minutes. Speaking of anarcho tyranny or like the collapse of cities, the the destruction of authority, the first twenty minutes of the film portray uh, sort of scenes that are very reminiscent of Helen's recent account of LA. <laughs> I would say, uh, I, and I don't know how this film codes politically, but it it, it certainly seems quite dis dissident, right, in terms of its portrayal of, I guess, um, dissident, right. Why does why does critiquing the? I think it's like left wing well, it, to be elucidating material reality. No, of course. But to go back to the earlier part of our conversation, where it, like you know the acceptance of crime is now like the progressive position. If you saw, I mean, well, I, I wouldn't say the acceptance. <laughs> I would say the denial. That there's oh, the just denial. A, okay. Yeah. No, but you facilitated see by people... the fact that crime has in fact reduced a lot versus the early nineties. The crime rate is yeah. a lot lower than it used to be especially in the places where educated people live. Right. But the logic would be something like, oh, some person has stolen my bike. They needed it more than I do. You know, I should feel sorry for them or whatever. You know, like that kind of altruistic, self-sacrificing, guilty model of the yeah, middle class. That's the hypothetical position which you can adopt in the comfortable place where professional class people actually live where nobody ever steals anybody's bike. <laughs> right, sure. But even, you know, like with the with the the Jordan Neely situation in New York where the you know the guy was killed on the train and you know, some people saying like, oh, it's just a natural feature of life that you, you know, there are people who are mentally ill and homeless and addicted who are like, you know, um, and and we should feel sorry for for them, not not feel upset that people are being harassed or intimidated. Yeah. We should feel sorry for this, them, this... but we should have a system that doesn't 
make it so bad. They have right. this layer on it of, of whose side are you on? Are you on the side right. of the person who's on the train right. upset or are you on the side of the person who is disturbed on the train? And it didn't really become a, a structural conversation where you think sure. about why that kind of thing happens. It just became a screaming festival of who do you empathize with, which is why yeah. empathy is such an impoverished category for thinking about social problems. If it's just a question of who do I empathize with, who I empathize with is often arbitrary and often... Uh, highly exclusive yeah i mean i did some work on empathy quite a few years ago and uh it's interesting the first use of the 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 idea was not to do with people at all but to do with objects it's a kind of german idea of of um, a feeling with nature um and it, it sort of quickly it sort of became something to do with like fellow feeling later on but actually empathy was a sort of in feeling like an indwelling like it's almost like a kind of heideggerian or, or you know german romantic uh idea um, yeah, and it, I think it. Yeah, it is a very uh, uh, dangerous concept. I mean, it, it it takes away aspects of earlier virtues, or it has elements of them like uh, caritas or charity, but makes it uh, not uh, systematic, but makes it more pathological and more therapeutic. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it's a, a concept that was invented relatively recently in the history yeah. of thought, but which is now naturalized and treated like a fundamental thing that all human exactly. beings have to possess. And if they don't possess it, they're in some way defective. And all of the good traits that people have are somehow tied or connected to this because whether we're good or bad people has to come from our nature and not from what we learn. Uh, it's a, a kind of naturalizing of yeah. virtues that used to be framed as something that you were taught. Yeah, for sure. And also, I mean, you know, excessive empathy is actually very dangerous because if someone is suffering, they need your help. They don't need you to feel with them. You know, if someone is sort of in pain, you don't need to feel their pain. You need to get them help, right? Which would require a degree of rational distance. You can feel compassion and sympathy for this person, but to feel empathy is actually not a good idea. You know, it's Especially because a lot of the time, the people who are suffering are less able to articulate why they are suffering because of the suffering. The suffering can right. make it difficult for people to appropriately assess uh, their situations. And so, if you're just focused on what somebody's saying or how somebody feels, and you're not looking at situations, you're not going to get very far. Uh, something that I think we've, I, I, at least I've been on a lot of different podcasts talking about that for years. That goes back a ways. <laughs> yeah. Well, fair enough. Yeah. Um, but something that I think, you know, we're still constantly having to deal with this assumption that any, the only thing that could possibly motivate you to help somebody else is empathy. And mm. so, therefore, as soon as we have a situation where somebody isn't helping someone, the problem is a lack of empathy and has to be framed in those terms. And it, it led to, I think, a lot of the really boring stuff that gets assigned to kids in school, these novels, for instance, that are just about trying to get them to empathize with different groups of people, yeah. but aren't really about thinking about societies or structures or problems. You think about some of the great 19th century novels about social problems, you know, like we talked a little bit before we got on the show about Zola. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, really, uh, what's going on in this coal mine? You know, what's the deal here? Uh, yeah. And uh, these days, it's not about you know, how does the mine work. It's about uh, getting you to empathize with somebody that is meant to be from a different group from you. And there yeah. isn't really any thinking about what causes any of that. Uh, you know, today, I think if you if you assign Zola to 15-year-olds, they would complain that the, there's too much distance from the characters and there's no real emotional resonance to that kind of work. But there's so much of it. This is the thing. It's precisely because of the, I mean, this is, this was something that I had a sort of a battle with in a, in a recent project. I think it's actually precisely the lack of focus on wider societal issues that overwhelm the subject and that actually touch everybody, that it is more difficult to empath empathize. You know, it's actually the, the material conditions that draw us in and, the, you know, that, that, that overwhelm the character and that, that make things more tragic. And, you know, the, I, I think Zola's the most emotionally gripping novelist, mm. personally. It's, it's interesting to go back to, the, to If for a second, because I think the, the contemporary scene and this emphasis on emotive, emotion and, um, you know, emotivism as a form of argumentation, like, oh, I feel this, therefore it must be the case, right, which it was surrounded by. Um, 
we could see it as a sort of feminization of the institution, right, as many people have argued. And I don't think this is necessarily a reactionary thing to say. I think, you know, certain features that are associated with a particular sex, not to say that all women behave like this or anything like that, but, you know, these things have been emphasized in particular institutions and have come to dominate. So a remake of If today would actually have the matron characters basically running <laughs> running things not the not the old white men of well the, what the is interesting and, yeah is that these schools there's only a, two or three schools now that don't have that aren't mixed you yeah. know so there's I, I was the first year of girls they it was an all-boys school that had been around for hundreds of years and there was the first year they introduced girls there were like 25 of us and five year, girls in the year above and hundreds of boys and they just gave us a skirt and told us to get on with it and it was sort of you know um as you can imagine. But um, what you would have, it, what you're talking about, interestingly, I mean, um, I've maybe have I talked about this a little bit about this, this shit that went down at Eton a few years ago with the infiltration of Wokery. And the interesting thing is, I mean, this, this is a whole thing. I was, I've been thinking about doing a documentary about it, but also um, I can, in this instant, it was to do with, um, well, well, with schools, you know, it's it's like the you know, she talks about lows the 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 um, you know, the charity status, and then there's also you know this charity giving, this philanthropic sort of thing, and these schools doing this outreach, and this, which in and of itself isn't bad, but when it's a cover story for the inequality, then it's not great. Um, but you know, the, these schools are always very quickly quick to to fall over themselves to to buy into a given um, uh, virtue signally kind of. Uh, latest issue. Um, but this was to do with um, the mismanagement of the school um, from top down and the fear of reprisal from a certain contingent of people. And maybe your your assessment is correct in that uh, situation because <laughs> it was a small contingent of people that the senior management was terrified of. In an environment which was hyper hype. Well, the interesting thing was is when I was there, I I didn't experience when I say hypermasculine, I didn't experience misogyny ever. Mm -hmm. In fact, at a school like that, you're given the seniority of a 60-year-old man when you're 22 and just told to get mm -hmm. and given that level of respect. And um and yeah, I, I never felt in any way, and it was changing careers that suddenly you're like, whoa, I'm treated like a child or patronized or, you know, whatever, having having been given like so much agency and support in it. So it's, you know, all of these things, it's never really to do with a gender, quote unquote, identity or, or category or anything like that, that, you know, the, the issues are much more, you know, they're much more kind of like important, pervasive kind of basic human issues that that anybody is able to transcend with logic and reason. Quick question before we run out of time, and this may not be the most important thing to pick up on, but I, I don't want to forget to pick up on it. I didn't realize that when you were at Eaton, the sex distribution was so poorly balanced. What do you mean? Did that have any, you know, the, the number of, of women relative to the number of men, the number of girls relative to the number well, of boys no in the school? Boys, there were no girls at Eaton. Still. Right. I didn't realize that you were there at the very beginning and there was that kind of... Uh, oh, no. I was at the school. I didn't go to Eton myself. I went to a different school that had okay. female boys. They had some sixth grade gotcha. girls, but then it was the first year. But obviously, this was purely a an economic decision that they, right. you know, they, the market forces led them to, to all these Okay. So not Eton, different school, yeah. different school. But uh, I think point's still relevant, which is, do you think there were any consequences that not not that it was integrated, but that it was only partially integrated to the point where women were over, girls were overwhelmingly in the minority. Uh, Did you notice anything? Yeah, but I think it was that? more to do with a hundred percent. But I think it was more less to do with gen issues of gender and more to do with issues of the school's culture, which eventually was massively changed by subsequent headmasters who did a sort of, you know, in many ways unfair culling expelling loads of people to try to get rid of a certain culture. This culture was a, it's interesting, the school that I, I kind of like accidentally ended up there and it has a very, and I, I don't know what it's like now, but at the time it was a very, um, I don't want to use um, like, because I don't think it's to do with to gender per se, but it was, it had a, a bullying environment, a kind of um, 
arrogant. It was less to do. It was a school. You know, schools have sort of cultures, and it was less to do with like academic excellence and more to do with like brute force. And there were certain incidences of like GBH and bullying and all this kind of stuff, which I think because that was already there, this led to certain dynamics. Yeah, that that maybe took on that you know because of the because of the contingent like bringing in of girls at that time. Yeah. Gotcha. So the existing culture of bullying manifested in the gender divide, and, but you don't really think it was to do with the sex divide itself, but with... Yeah, it was as a result of that, but you can imagine the kind of... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because I'm thinking in terms of, of scarcity, if you take an all-boys school and you create a dating market within the school, the, the uh, but you only include a very small number of girls, the terrible imbalance that creates among boys who aren't used to dating... And who aren't used to having girls around, I can just imagine a lot of, of weird incel, uncomfortable stuff. I mean, interesting because I would say it was almost like the opposite of incel because it's a, it was a school that gave. But, you know, again, like confidence and lack of confidence is sort of a dialectical thing. But, um, yeah, it, it in, yeah, I wouldn't say consciously encouraged, but the environment and the culture was such that a certain type of dynamic existed yeah yeah i mean among 15 year olds you know almost everybody's an incel in so far as almost no one who's 15 and a boy has had sex so both the cool boys and the not cool boys are are both in a position of being incels they're just kind of different species of the same thing it was very it was hypersexualized that's for sure the school we were at yeah yeah. Mm. <laughs> All right. Anyway, we've hit the hour mark, so we're going to go and do the B side, uh, where we'll we'll continue and and perhaps bring in some other things. That's over on Patreon if you'd like to uh, listen over there. But regardless, thank you so much for joining us today, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.